0: Join us as we unpack emerging trends and changes in digital transformation with the executives, entrepreneurs, and investors responsible for shaping the future of their industries. In these interviews, you can expect to hear candid conversations about the future of technology and the role it plays at some of the largest organizations in the world. Our hosts are members of the Kunai team, an agency that has been building software products for over 20 years. Today, your host will be Kyle Berry.
1: Welcome, payment junkies, to the CanEye FinTech is Eating the World podcast. I am your host, Kyle Berry, and we have a wonderful pod ahead of us where we're going to be driving into how do we push large organizations into boundaries that they're not uh, ready for or have seen yet. Uh, one of my favorite topics, decentralization, and then also the role that financial institutions are going to be playing in the move from monetary assets to digital assets. I'm very excited to welcome our guest, Uh he is the EVP leader of the R&D group over at Wells Fargo. His name is Siavash Alamudi. Siavash, thanks for joining.
2: Hi, Carl. Thanks for the invitation. It's my pleasure being here today.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I'm, I'm just super pumped to have you. I know that we've, uh, we've gone back and forth a little bit on what we wanted to talk about today, man you know, for me, I'm just super excited because there's always been something that links this pod and kind of makes it special. And we're not just talking about FinTech and the evolution of where we've been or where we're going, but I really love to connect things back to where people came from. And one thing that I think has always been, you know, I've seen in the past for all of our guests is everyone's kind of born and bred in this FinTech world, right? You know, they start off at traditional banks or in the credit card institutions, or, you know, they've been in investment management. They've always kind of been in that world. And now I've got someone like you who comes from a totally different background uh, from telecom and cloud. And I just think it breeds this whole new kind of generation of thought process and what you're bringing to it. So I'm very excited to have you on and hear about how that works. So, you know, I'd love to start and track back to growing up. Um, you know, you started, you were born and raised in Iran, um, and you were headed off to College basically, right as the cultural revolution is really even not, not even just spiking but raging at this point,
2: correct? Yeah, absolutely. Yes, yeah. so I, I got into the university to what is called the Sharif University, which used to be called the uh, Ariyamir University in Iran, This is the equivalent of IITs in India or MIT in the US. It was the school with uh, that the top uh, few hundred students would get into. Uh, and awesome. it was the same year that the revolution happened. So I lasted very uh, uh, few months in the university. I was uh, purged, uh, right, uh, expelled from the university uh, right after the Cultural Revolution. This wow. to some extent I mean, kind of gave me gave me this appreciation that in life you can't take anything for granted. Either.
1: No, I mean absolutely not. I, you know, that was I I just remember when I was going in my freshman year, what I was expecting i had a course load for engineering, but at the same time, you know, I was going to frat parties and trying to try out for the Baseball team and different things like that. I was not worried about being expelled from my country in general, right? Um, so that's got to be a huge shift. And then you moved to Spain, correct? And and what and how did you guys how did your family kind of react? Because your dad was pretty high up as well in government,
2: correct? Yes, yes. My uh, my dad in, was in charge of uh, managing water resources uh, for the country uh, during uh, during the shock. And even afterwards, after the revolution, after getting expelled from the ministry, they brought him back again as well because of the importance of water, resource management. Okay, But in, but you in yourself, my own yeah, personal please. experience, I came from a privileged family, and then I became a refugee in a matter of a year and a half, two years, you know, going, uh, you know, escaping through mountains uh, of Pakistan and then uh, thankfully uh, ending up in, in Spain. I was lucky after 40 days in, in Pakistan, I managed to reach Spain. And uh there I had to survive on my own. you know. Uh, I was always taken care of by my family. Now I had to at age 19, I had to take care of myself. I you know I uh, sold cigarettes in concert venues i taught english uh you know in uh in in a school in an institute uh, whatever way to hustle uh uh, to uh, to make money and survive and eventually i ended up in canada as a political refugee and then i came to the us uh, work for my call cellular you know, in okay. terms of how that uh, impacted my uh, personal life uh, and and professional life is that I really learned that uh, you know how things can change overnight in your life and how dependent we are uh, to uh, and how connected we are uh, as individuals to the population you know Iran uh, because of a, a maybe ten fifteen percent uh, of the people that are living in massive poverty, uh, those people were recruited into uh, uh, Islamic fundamentalism and became the, uh, you know, reason uh, for the establishment of a dictatorship in Iran. You know, so the yeah. so wealth disparity has been always to me. I, I I'm always I have this paranoid uh, paranoia with wealth disparity in any society that you see this massive wealth disparity, you see these social ills right and uh, my uh, quest to get into telco and uh, providing uh, wired and wireless networks and access to mobile internet was really that uh, always my passion was that i thought if we bring access to information to masses uh, we will uh, reduce uh, uh, wealth inequality provide equal access to information which will bring people closer together, uh, which will address a lot of issues around, uh, you know, global tribalism, uh, fundamentalism, uh, and those kinds of things. And that we would have a better life as a collective, You know, I always thought that way.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I think it's, you know, again, I go back to your history and kind of your professional or your personal life and how you've kind of come up. And again, it's pushing towards this, you know, after Vancouver and after college in Vancouver, you come down, you work for AT&T, you move into telecom, you know, you become a leader over at Vodafone. Um, You know, it is around this push of decentralized information, right? And so that everyone has access to the same information. uh, We get out of these echo chambers, and we understand what is going on. And that was a big thing, again, that you've mentioned to me, was a, a huge part of the Iranian cultural revolution was this lack of decentralized information, everything was controlled, everything was pushed in a manner in which to shape the minds of people. So Talk to me a little bit about some of the roles that you had in that initial, in those initial telecom companies, right? So whether it was AT&T or if it was Vodafone, wherever you'd like to start there. Because you had some major parts in that, right? whether it was Wi-Fi, YGig, any of those?
2: Absolutely. So I, I started at a, a company called NPR Teltec, which was a research lab <coughs> in Vancouver owned by a uh, British telephone company. It was like the equivalent of Bell Northern Research on the West Coast. It was then broken up into pieces, became Sierra Wireless, PMC Sierra. PMC a lot of companies came uh, came out of that uh, entity. Your typical research lab, like Bell Labs, right? and I worked on early mobile data protocols. I uh, participated in the design of CDPD, cellular dig- digital packet data, 19.2 kilobits per second. Uh, <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> <laughs> At the time it was, it was state-of-the-art technology. Yeah. And I actually was, I did that project of my cost cellular which then they recruited me after uh, NPR was uh, broken up to go to Seattle and work on this really hush-hush project uh, called Project Angel that uh, McCall was uh, driving to bring fixed wireless access, meaning using wireless technology to bring uh, fixed connectivity to homes. And uh, so I, I, I wasn't really aware uh, what the project was. It was very hush-hush. I, I didn't know until the day that I went. It it
1: launched or something?
2: Yeah. <laughs> it, it, it was, it was a very secret project at the time. I mean, this was before 3G gets launched, right? Okay. And I thought I was going to work on 3G technology. And I was very disappointed when, uh, uh, they told me that they wanted to do fixed wireless because it didn't make any sense to me as a wire, wireless, uh, uh technologies. And I did my best to make wireless more uh, kind of uh, uh, reliable uh, for fixed access. Okay. That's where I invented the, the uh, Alamuti code. It was really okay. perform- Project the challenges of uh, making that work, but I was never believing in it. And at that time, Wi-Fi had just started gaining ground, and I tried to convince uh, uh, AT and T to invest in uh, in Wi-Fi. They didn't. I went to. Uh, uh, some I can't the-
1: imagine. I can't <laughs> imagine that was not a hard push. I AT and T is a small company. You know, those they they turn on a, on a dime. So, you know, I mean, you know that was the other thing it, it just it it always funds it always uh, makes you laugh. It, you know, these larger companies trying to move them in different directions, right, or new directions that you think are going to lead to the future is difficult, right? They've got they have their core competencies, they have their core products, they know they think they know what they're doing, right? But they sometimes get lost or blindfolded by the revenues being generated, the money coming in and okay, we're going to stick to this. You know, I, I want to skip it. I'd love to skip ahead to the Vodafone. One of my favorite things about your past is that you tried to bring this mobile wallet technology to a, a telecom company. It was, you know, this is 2010 in the early days even you know, thinking about mobile wallets. But give give me some, tell us a little bit about that because I think that's something our, our listeners would love to listen to.
2: Sure, sure, absolutely. So after uh, at after eighteen I actually went and did a Wi-Fi startup uh, with this uh uh, kind of a view to uh decentralizing uh, uh wireless networks and that's where i ended up at intel and i started the mobile WiMAX initiative and the, and, okay. and the, uh, uh well i'm going say i started uh, the team had started Thinking about mobile WiMAX, but I took the role as the CTO and got uh, uh, behind this. Uh, that, that technology eventually, there's a lot of story around it that eventually became uh, uh, combined with LTE and a lot of the IP move to make LTE a little bit more open. But it was a failure from the perspective of creating a Wi-Fi-like technology for sellers. Right, that was the idea. And that's where I actually got connected with Vodafone and I uh, had uh, established relationships and then uh, became group R&D director and went over there. And at the time, uh, but Vodafone had done a lot uh, uh, in terms of philanthropic efforts around finance within PESA and all of that. That, that was a, a product that came from uh, Group R&D uh, at, at Vodafone and eventually became a, a product. But it was really a philanthropic effort. It was about helping people in Africa using the mobile phones uh, to not carry cash because, uh, you know, getting on a bus, they would get robbed. And having carrying... Absolutely uh money on the phone was it was an amazing amazing project uh so we wanted to kind of build uh on top of this when i got to waterphone i had become already very concerned about the two-sided business model and the ad-driven business model that uh, was uh, uh, becoming the common way of funding companies and i was super super concerned with this and was uh, delighted that Vodafone was uh, trying to do, called something called Vodafone 360, which was like the equivalent of Facebook, uh, but uh, with uh, control over the data uh, for the consumer, with no ads, right? OK? So, uh, but that obviously had uh, uh, a lot of difficulties; it never got uh, launched. But I started. Uh, yeah, I
1: don't, I don't project. sign into Vodafone 360. If uh, I hope that's not <laughs> a, you know, it's not something I, it's not an app on my phone right now. I'm not, uh, you know, being targeted by it. You
2: know, so yeah, exactly. Exactly. Well, that project then never really uh, uh, went anywhere. It was, it was a great app, but it's. <laughs> Fundamentally, many issues are monetization of something like that. Uh, and Facebook had found a way of monetizing this, which was through ad-driven business models. But the uh, uh, problem with that was this entire you know, creation of the attention economy. And the fact that we had not yet reached uh, the understanding how much personal data was worth. Even today, people argue that personal data is not worth anything. It's Facebook and Google and other companies that are making, uh, uh, you know, nice. that, yeah. That, yeah. That value out of it that fundamentally there's no inherent value. Some people believe in that, right? Not me. Of course, I believe that, uh, personal data is the uh, future f- uh, fuel for the, for the economy. And, uh, that's why I, uh, kind of when I started it at Vodafone, I started, uh, uh, uh also projects around creating a gateway uh, that would manage all, all the insights to your life, that we could uh, also create a mobile wallet and, and uh, provide financial management uh, uh, through the platform uh, for people. Because the key aspect of being able to manage your life is to have a 360 view of your own life. And none yep. of us do. You know, we have such, especially in an app economy. App economy is about apps for targeted use cases, right? Even uh, when you want to do a startup company, you go to a VC and say, what problem are you solving? So that, that attitude of investment around point products has created a siloed, fragmented environment of applications, which makes life, uh, to some extent, very tough to manage. Because we have all of these uh, uh, fragmented experiences that they don't uh, talk to each other. So well, I-
1: think of them as avenues, right? I mean, you're you're being pulled in so many different directions all the time by notifications, different things. You know, again, it's a it's an app for every little use case, and this super app that I think that we are seeing down the line, and we've seen, you know, I think there's there's uh, companies in Asia, Asia Pac, as well as as in India that are actually starting to create these more super apps. Um, but it is a disparate community in which the user, the consumer, myself, yourself, everyone is being pulled in all these different directions for just individual use cases, as you mentioned. So exactly. you're, you're at Vodafone. The focus is again, one, you find yourself in a position at which you're in a large organization trying to move a behemoth Titanic out of, you know, into the next phase of their yeah. evolution. And there is some feedback, right? I mean, tele, telecom was the original, those were the behemoth companies back in the day, or in the late 90s to 2000s, they owned all the information, they owned all of the traffic in which data was passed at that point in time. So you find yourself trying to create a different piece of them, um, obviously hitting headwinds. um, But again, focused around this, how do we decentralize this aspect of, of data and the transfer of it, right? So, communications basically.
2: Absolutely. And that's, that's where kind of like the underlying uh, trend that I uh, really saw at the time was uh, this kind of distributed, the decentralized, open networks. I was promoting Wi Fi a lot. And, and, you know, Vodafone to their credit, uh, they, uh, they put some mind share behind it, but it's very difficult for a large organization that is making tens of billions of dollars from a given business to enter into the into new areas because from a, yeah. a priority point of view uh these new projects are smaller projects and they take time uh to gain revenue and and in order to gain attention you really truly you have to either consciously strategically convince an organization to lose money like uh, what Intel did in the early days of Wi-Fi by subsidizing Wi-Fi chips into every laptop. You know, uh, that was, that had an amazing impact in proliferation of Wi-Fi in, uh, of course, Intel's leadership uh, on the, uh, in, in the semiconductor for computing uh, as well. It helped them, but th- there was never a, a very successful p from Wi-Fi. Wi-Fi always yeah. lost money. And to this day, it has worked against, uh, 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 in Intel's leadership. They never managed to get into the mobility space the way, uh, uh, they used to, right? And I'm really hoping that they can crack that. Uh, and I think it's a fantastic company, uh, with a lot of, uh, uh you know, great people that work there, but, uh, it, it was, uh, they had to consciously decide to put billions of dollars in a technology that didn't have any direct revenue in order to impact the health of the ecosystem and make sure uh, that we have actually true access to internet. Without Wi-Fi, if we would have left it to the telcos and Wi-Fi hadn't grown to the way that we are growing, we'd be years behind. We'd be still doing mega. Megaphone- oh, we'd
1: still be on desktops. So we'd still have to yeah. be wired in, right? I mean, that's just where their mindset was: is they're making more money by keeping you wired in, right? It wasn't. It, it was a, a direct opposite. Uh, impact, impact or effect of going wireless for for the telecom. Exactly. So, and that kind of you know never that kind of with, leads into with,
2: with the internet model of all you can eat data. It was never an incentive uh, to provide higher data rate, and that's one of the fundamental issues they're facing with five G today. You know they've spent now hundreds of billions of dollars in spectrum. How do I make money by providing yeah. bigger, fatter pipes? But I'm uh, doing, uh, so they're doing all sorts of stuff to try to find alternate ways of uh, uh, gaining revenue.
1: Well, I mean, I could go, I could certainly go on and on about the communications and the, and the telecom companies. I mean, they're, they're making certain bets now in media, and those are not working out, some of them and others. And, but, I, you know, I'll digress there. You know, so you've figured out, you've come into telecom, you've seen what's going on there. You're trying to decentralize and move into a new business. Then you get an interest into cloud. And, and that kind of leads into a little bit of blockchain. What was that kind of evolution as well? What did that look like for you?
2: So, so when I was thinking, thinking about the uh, issue of data ownership and this issue of uh, ad-driven business model and all that, I, I realized uh, that the underlying uh, really important thing to have an ecosystem open ecosystem was decentralization and cloud uh, was going exactly the opposite direction. <laughs> it was <laughs> things being centralized into servers in the cloud. Yep. And I could see both from a technology perspective and a business perspective. From a business perspective, we would put too much, uh, uh, power in the hands, uh, of a few, uh, companies. And from a uh, uh, network perspective, which we've seen, which we've seen
1: now, right? The big techs, they all own everything. So.
2: Absolutely from natural perspective it didn't make any sense you know uh it, if if you're getting uh uh smarts embedded into things in order to automate to make my life easier then uh like whatever processing that is happening needs to happen close to me yeah. not close to some data center These data centers are hundreds of kilometers away even with uh uh this uh, uh mobile uh edge computing of telcos and yeah. all of that maybe oh, yeah. kilometers away uh from me or even hundreds of meters away from me it's not good enough it has to be the the intelligence needs to work for me, not for a third party entity right so I started this initiative uh uh with uh, uh to uh, uh take a company that had created a edge gateway to an extreme edge cloud solution. That's the company Mimic that we uh, invented something called the hybrid edge cloud to turn every device into a server, right? Okay. So breaking that client-server paradigm to say the server can be anything. So uh, Silash can serve Kyle. My application can uh, serve your application. Why should, do we need a middleman? for me to be able to, for instance, chat with you? Or why can't part of uh, the uh, microservice microservices that are supporting uh, the application on my device, why can't it run on the device itself, especially with Moore's law, right? Yep, yep. So I spent six years over there. And in the last two years, I focused on, so once you say, when you look at it, Communication is getting decentralized with Wi-Fi and Bluetooth and all of that. Uh, The uh, computing is getting decentralized by getting embedded into everything, right? Your dishwashers and sensors, everything are going to have computing in it. So that's decentralization. Cloud is going to get decentralized with this hybrid edge and edge compute and all of that. There was also the business process. The business process was getting decentralized through blockchain. So I started looking and saying, okay, now that we have all these elements of decentralization, uh, uh, let's get rid of the banks altogether, right? It's, uh, you know, they haven't been doing a, a good job. Watch out. Enough.
1: You work for one now. Watch no, out. I, you work for one.
2: Yeah. But I was, that was my thing. I'm very open, <laughs> open about this. That I went through that path and say, Hey, 2008, a lot of fiascos with the banks and all of that. Uh, so, uh, you know, Let's get rid of them. We won't need them in the future. But when I started, that's because I was very naive. Uh, I, I was new uh, uh, to the financial sector. When I started digging in and looking at all the elements that was required, because you you want both the ability for people to control their stuff, and you want uh, uh, also some sort of regulatory uh, oversight, so that. Uh, uh the rights of the people uh are uh, are preserved, and at the same time the bad actors uh are filtered out or stopped yep. somehow you can't have a completely uh you know uh, decentralized system because bad actors well, that's, would take advantage yeah
1: bad actors do it right i mean that's the whole thing with the block at this point right is there's still this anonymity around who is controlling this? Who is monitoring it? Who is verifying it, right? It's a The blockchain is all about how do we verify uh, whatever it is that we're transitioning? How do we find ownership and then confirm it, right? And then who is doing that? And the whole point of the blockchain is to centralize that action. So it doesn't just sit within one, two, five people. It sits within a community to actively and in real time confirm that transfer of assets um, or whatever it may be, right? That that legislature. So with that, again, because of the anonymity that the internet has created, and it goes back to what you've talked about. You had the telecom trying to control the way that data flowed and the communications that was decentralized. Then you get into the cloud and now you have a few cloud providers that are controlling where all this data sits and how it's interacted with you. Then it gets into where blockchain is. And again, this anonymity of the internet is still creating a, not a, it is a fear. It's a fear of who is going to be confirming this still. And I think that's where blockchain is still a little bit on the edge, trying to find ways in um, and still find a place within our, our future and our and our current world uh, is because that anonymity is still scary to people. And what does that mean? So so, talk to me a little bit about that that blockchain kind of event for you, because that's really where we'd into now. Okay, I, the banks are where it's going to be, but but talk to me about that trustless that's trustless system
2: there. So, so that that's that's for for the reasons that you said very very quickly. Uh, in in a few months, I realized that a trust entity was needed for, for two reasons. One. Uh, the, the fact that there has to be some sort of a regulatory oversight, in which case uh, you end up uh, with really uh, a choice to say, hey, let this state be uh, that uh, point of trust for uh, for a regulatory oversight, because that's we mm-hmm. need of governments uh, to kind of protect us from the bad of actors. Course. That's one of the major roles of uh, what they do which would leave us to a completely state-controlled model, similar uh, to China, uh, where uh, the government would issue, for instance, uh, digital dollar, and then uh, they would uh, also act to distribute it. In that model, uh, we are open to non-democratic and despotic uh, governments. And from my uh, past experience, that was something I've always been very paranoid of, obviously. And uh, I, I couldn't see that working because, you know, I would uh, wake up one morning because I said something against the government and all, all my uh, assets are gone. So that's the kind of world that I want to live in. So it's so, OK, there has to be someone that comes between the government and the state. So the government can issue a digital currency and then the. Uh, uh, banks uh, or financial institutions of some form, again, uh, uh, they will be in charge of the distribution so that private entities uh, will protect my digital assets and will come between me and the government, right? Yep. Uh, and if uh, you know the government needs to look into my financial activities, they can uh, uh, ask for that through a, a process and not uh, uh, just haphazard. Be able to pull what they want. Yeah, uh, absolutely, pull, uh, right. Uh, pull, pull what they want. So that was a Tax very day important. is
1: everyone's favorite day, right? The other thing so, is- yeah, absolutely.
2: The complexity of the uh, assets themselves, uh, you know, I, I learned this from just uh, working with some of the people in the gig economy, uh, that how difficult it is to manage these digital assets, your taxes, your payments you're, and, and now we're going from a world of uh, physical to digital where you're going to have complex concepts such as nft yeah, getting things digitized uh, partial ownership of things partial trade of things so it's becoming more and more complex for an individual to be able to manage these things on their own and it's not something that a machine uh, uh, can can do on your behalf because these machines are based on algorithms. These algorithms are opinions. They are opinions and uh, opinions of individuals, and these individuals need to be told what those opinions should be for the health of the society, right? So the only way to ensure financial health is to have a group of people that sit together and design algorithms to better manage the financial health of their customers. So there has to be an entity uh, doing that. There is no, this is not something or entities, not another single entity. But, uh, uh, and I think that's what the role of the banks and financial institutions in the future are. So to, to be yeah, I mean, you've- digital assets.
0: Hey there, we hope you're enjoying this episode of the Kunai podcast. Kunai concepts, designs, and develops unique customer experiences that unite digital products with fintech for the world's top companies. We partner with our clients from start to finish to ensure that their product development efforts are always high-velocity and customer-aligned. This is why Fortune 500 companies, all four payment networks, five of the ten top banks, and startups trust Kunai and now back to the episode
1: so that's and that really leads us into wells right i mean and you've talked in our previous conversations you've talked about right now this point in history and this is something that is resemblance of our second next our industrial revolution right we are transforming industry in all these sectors we are moving towards this new world and that is kind of what's led and again. We've started off in telecom. We try to decentralize. You've moved into cloud decentralization, right? We are folk and you, you're just, your whole career has been focused on how we do this. And it is inevitable, I think, that you ended in banking because that is what we are seeing on a very fast-paced uh, trajectory right now. Whether we're talking about embedded finance, banking as a service, um, it is no longer something that a traditional bank is has the proprietary to do anymore. You have so many different companies being able to offer these typical or traditional banking services. So, bringing that back into banking, how do you see that? You know that that obviously is your is your focus with Wells Fargo in terms of that kind of data monetization, or at least like you said, custodians of digital assets, right? but talk to me a little bit about digital assets versus monetary assets how is the bank going to evolve there
2: so so first of all everything is going to become uh, digital right so we just have to be well prepared uh, tomorrow to be able to manage i don't know a piece of art that has been digitized stored cryptocurrency whether it's a a token uh, for some sort of utility or it's uh, a asset like uh, bitcoin or even uh, you know, if any uh, cryptos for some reason in the future I used for uh, for payment after even digital currencies have come. That's that's a even, one aspect.
1: Yeah, I mean even it's, for me, it's it's beyond just the actual monetary right. It, the digital asset is you. You are the asset. Whatever you do, how you pay, how what you buy, uh, when you brilliant. buy it, where you buy it, all of those things, all that data that is being built um, right. and held right now is is technically in the bank. They know where it all is going. So with banks continuing to go in the future, you have other industries, like whether it's healthcare or a number of different things offering traditional banking services, where do banks then move into? And this seems to me like your, you know, your focus here.
2: Yeah. So, so the, the the thing is this: like the, the banking, as you said, you kind of referred to the various vertical industries getting into banking is that they need they have financial management needs, right? And the banking, as we know it, needs to transform to be hidden as part of the business process, right? So, uh if I do shopping, uh, then payment is part of that. Lending or borrowing from, from a customer perspective is part of the shopping experience. Getting a mortgage is buying, buying part of the home buying experience. So to some extent, these things get hidden as explicit actions, these financial things. It become part of the business process. And that's where banks need to work with, uh, enterprises to get those things embedded into a business process. So that's a big part of platformization of banking. That's one really important thing. The other thing is using uh, the decentralized technologies, whether it's DLT or 5G or uh, edge computing, edge cloud, uh, to make the existing transactions more uh, efficient so that you can reduce the cost and you can make these services scalable that's another big aspect and the fundamental underlying thing is to get 360 view to the data because if 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 machines are going to work on our behalf Mm -hmm. that machines can only make good decisions but they need good data and good models models (laughs) means Algorithms that have been designed for my benefit, for my financial health. People that sit down and think through and say, "How can I not that? You know, how can I increase the revenue from a credit card? Yeah, but make high interest rates discourage people from paying on time, and uh, you know, you make a lot of revenue, right? Yep. Uh, but that world is over because uh, that that is a world that gets disintermediated very quickly, right?" It's uh, commoditized. I mean, it's a commoditized piece. There's so many people it else doing it. But, yeah, but if you have a view that hey, let me get Sir uh, Vash's uh, life organized so he's never late on his payments, he uh, has enough in his retirement uh, uh, account, he has enough for uh, I don't know his children's uh, school and all of that, and I can help them. And the only way I can do that. Uh, uh, for someone is to have a 360 uh, view through their life, And to have a 360 view, it means that my data is not going to get abused. So it couldn't go to an entity that has other uses for that data, right? Yeah. You know what I'm saying? So, so that's why I never believed, for instance, that the uh, uh, Amazons or the Facebooks of the world should be in charge of managing uh, uh, finances uh, of the future. That's like you put a, a pharmaceutical company in charge of wellness. They, they yep. are making money by selling drugs, uh, not uh, ensuring your wellness. No,
1: they have yeah. absolutely right. I mean, that is their business model, right? So that, that right. is the the corollary here that i draw between this is banks have always been there to monitor and control your your monetary or to to manage your monetary assets on your behalf right but as the consumer as their customer you still own all of those assets right you're putting money in this is simple one banking 101 you give money to the bank for them to hold secure it and guarantee it that it'll be there as well as offer ways in which it can grow. The bank on your behalf either invests your money or uses your money to loan out to others and, and and grow, right? But it's still yours. If you go to the bank tomorrow, you should be able to pull it out and do what you want with it. So this is where the two things that what you're saying I really connect with is one, the banks have your trust already, right? Whether we've gone through little hurdles in the past with 2008, 2009, the subprimes, all those different things, et cetera, yeah. There may not be love right now.
2: There may not be (laughs) love love for banks right now, but there is trust. And we really need to change that trust to love because, because genuinely, uh, if the banks don't play that role of fixing this thing, it was uh, Shakar Karif from um, uh, Berkeley that very nicely said, they said, he said, "If uh, for our digital health, for instance, tomorrow we're going to have some of our Fitbits and this kind of things to manage that, and eventually we can uh, manage the health of the individuals and even personalized services with with finance, uh, which is key to our, uh, you know, a, a healthy financial life is key to our prosperity in the future, right? Because it's only money that buys you stuff. This is not like two thousand years ago." that uh, even if you have massive amounts of money you would still die from uh the slightest disease <laughs> that no yep. money buys everything and, and that's and we need financial management for people to preserve uh this society so th- there's no other way but to provide a better view uh, to a trusted entity that is uh, uh there to just uh, uh, improve your financial life and that's what they yeah. do and the way the business model should work is the more uh prosper prosperous you become the more you should uh pay them your share of that prosperity you know what i mean well so, yeah absolutely uh, right yeah, it's,
1: it's working money. for me right it's working for me right exactly. it's, it's coming back to not only not only am i trusting you but also I still own my data. I still own it. I'm the, I am the owner of it. You're just the custodian of how it is used. Okay. And I think that's where in this current environment that we're in right now, we have trusted too many of the techs and other companies with our livelihood, our data, we've become a product for them and not the customer. And so this is where I'm so interested in how things are gonna be driven for the banks for. And when you've talked on in the past, I just wanted you on this pod to really to explain this because I think this is where we need to go with financial institutions and financial services, is that not only are they becoming the trusted custodian of that, but they're making sure you still feel like you own your data, that you don't become the product, you're still the customer um and, so and it's that.
2: happened with, a, with an ecosystem i mean when i when i say that don't take me wrong this oh the fintechs uh, are all gonna uh, disappear and it's gonna be banks doing everything no not no all they're right. gonna
1: grow even more no they're, they're gonna, gonna grow more grow they're gonna take on those more. traditional bank
2: yeah Absolutely. that's
1: that's the partnership that goes with them right i mean again if you have i mean Amazon isn't just his own thing. It has all of these things, the fingers off, right? That people are are creating businesses, and everything else off. That is where the banks come in, is these fintechs are partners to them. They are the enablers of their services and where they can really focus on what the core business is. And that seems to be the changing factor. And that, and the, so now leading into, we've gone down, I, I've said it a few times, we've gone into telecom descent, uh, decentralization. We've seen cloud decentralization. Now you're coming into fintech in the banking world and trying to look at how we best to decentralize that. But what is the now mission? You joining Wells Fargo, what is the new mission of this group that you're leading? The R&D the, the group here, what are you trying to accomplish? Give me, give us some insight there.
2: So it's really about redefining the future of uh, banking and financial institutions, right? To uh, uh, kind of figure out what the data economy should be like as opposed to what it's like, right? Uh, we uh, are announcing a partnership at, uh, at Berkeley, uh, uh, Uni- University of Berkeley, UC Berkeley in um, uh, California. Mm-hmm. and everybody's aware of it, the House School of Business. Yep. Go Bears. Multi, yeah. m- multi, uh, multi-disciplinary uh, uh, lab to start looking at some of the fundamentals aspects of data economy uh, and how best to, uh, you know, um, you know, monetize data for the rightful owners, uh, of the data. Because there, there is a lot of academic, uh, work there, but there's no cohesive. If you ask someone to say, Hey, what is CLS's data worth? You hear a lot of opinions, but uh, r- r- nobody can really quantify and say uh, what personal data is worth and how people are going to monetize it. So we're going to run some of those uh, kind of fundamental uh, questions through through that lab. And then uh, we're going to create a platform for people to come, come and participate with one aim, and that is uh, to come up with technologies and solutions that are there to optimize not optimize products like credit cards lending and all of that but optimize the financial life of an individual a small business and a large enterprise that's going to be the focus of everything that we're going to do in 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 r&d right uh, at wells fargo and that's using technology, distributed ledger technology, APIs, microservices, AI, machine learning. And as you said, this is, this is a very unique time in the his, in our history, where we have all of these enabling technologies reaching maturity. Uh, the, uh, distributed ledger technology, the, um, uh, the battery storage technology, the computing technology, AI and machine learning that is going to transform every business, right? And we want to make sure that this happens in a socially sustainable way, right? So what we suffered uh, with our uh, false move in social media and the broken business model doesn't happen uh, to the uh, financial industry. So we're going to have... Yeah, a it doesn't leak into... Yeah. Yeah.
1: Very cool. Very cool. I mean, you're tapping certainly into some of the, the, the top young minds, right, coming up uh, over at Berkeley. Um, and I'm, I'm really just excited that how, how will you determine your progress? Like, if you're looking at multi-year or such, like, how are you going to look at the success and, and deem it a success you know, with this partnership with Berkeley, as well as you now leading the R and D team.
2: So we, the, the days of uh, multi-year R and D projects uh, are are uh, very much over because you you can see results much much quicker. So we we are gonna have, uh, uh, track uh, uh, delivery. Uh, towards our goals. For instance, establishment of uh, new payment rails. Uh, we've created uh, a digital cash uh, mechanism that our uh, CEO, Charlie Chaff uh, recently announced uh, mm-hmm. in his uh, report to the Congress. Uh, yep. So we, we will have a digital cash mechanism, smart money, Uh, So in preparation for the digital dollar, right? And we are building the platform in a way. So when the digital dollar comes in, the Wells Fargo digital cash can be replaced with the digital dollar or any other digital currency. So we're building... All of these uh, uh, platform aspects. And then we, we are doing research and working with third party companies on getting to a, a 360 view, creating a digital wallet that we can give the control to the, uh, to the user, right? And uh, of course, with banking as a platform, uh, providing uh, APIs uh, to uh, third parties to build bespoke experiences banking for the 1099 economy for the gig economy we are working on that banking for the urban uh, community banking for yep. various uh, vertical sectors and we, we we don't build a platform and say uh, hey come uh, and, and use this uh, we'll pick uh, certain uh, uh, pain points and start building the pl- platform based on those pain points and and so digital cash digital trade salamand. Uh, digital uh, uh, repurchase agreements to improve yep. these things, and then banking for um, uh, the unbanked, banking for the uh, 1099 economy, uh, better experiences with uh, uh, with mobile banking, uh, better 360 view to to people's personal lives uh, or fun, entire financial lives by working by fintechs and other banks. Again, th- this is something. Uh, And and we're willing to kind of open up uh, all of our technology. It's going to be hard to sit with others and create uh, standards. So whatever we do, if it works, we'll open up to the rest of the community uh, to use, right? with the, with the I mean, that's fantastic, that, right? Yeah, absolutely. I,
1: I think that's really something that is starting to change from just an ethos, uh, you know, just a mindset of the banks, right? Because they have been this trusted piece for so long. You trust your financial, they've been, and then because of that trust, it's been earned over time because they're so security focused. They are so focused. But what, what they were securing was your data, your assets, everything else, not the tech behind it, Right. Um, I I'm a huge believer in transparency through secure or security through transparency. And when you know, as a consumer, how things are working, how your data has been interacted with, how it's working for you, that is what creates. And you mentioned earlier that trust to love, and that's where we need to get to. Um, I definitely applaud what you guys are going to do over at Wells. I'm really excited to see Wells continue to take that and move it forward. And, you know, I go back to again, your your personal background in coming through the the cultural revolution in Iran, coming in selling cigarettes on the on the streets of Spain and coming over into then, you know, uh, being now a Canadian and US citizen and being a telecom and cloud and now in the banking. How you continue to find yourself in situations where you are pushing the boundaries of large organizations, where you are the voice within these large organizations that is trying to get them to go beyond their kind of uh, standard uh, address or standard products outside their core competency. How have you managed that progress throughout the years and the success with the large transformations? Like give me, you know, the, the, the 30 second breakdown. Cause I, you know, I'm sure there's no silver bullet, but, I just, you know, just to kind of wrap it in a bow.
2: Well, it, it it's all about uh, it's all about uh, a kind of collaborative effort within the organization. First of all, one important very important thing is that a proper governance process of R&D projects. That's what I've learned. You need A lot of people think with Agile and all of that, you don't need process anymore. Uh, In fact, this is exactly. (laughs) If you want to get innovations in, you need, you need a very well established process. And that process means that it needs to bring in Uh, a lot of people uh, that uh, need to manage these uh, solutions in the future to become aligned with you because you don't wanna work against the organization. And my impact on on these things increased as my life within the corporate world kind of, I started learning that not everything is about technology, not everything is about process, but uh, also the human factor, the soft touches to make sure that uh, everybody within the organization has uh, uh, benefits uh, from these new things. And if there are folks that, uh, for instance, they would be, their jobs would be threatened because of a change, you need to take that into consideration and make sure that they're not part of the decision cycle. Uh, in, yeah. uh, in your R&D process because they're disincentivized, uh, to, uh, do change. But it's a, really about a very clear, uh, strategy. Things don't happen. We, we've been, uh, born with these fables of, you know, uh, Newton, uh, the, uh, uh, apple dropped and the gravity was, uh, you know, theory of gravity was, uh, yes, yeah. yeah. complete BS story uh that's not how he was done. <laughs> uh, the guy worked uh, tens of years uh not on on these things uh uh, so these things don't happen by accident. You have to have a very clearly defined strategy if you want to change things right, just like Amazon has done with retail it, they they didn't, uh, this wasn't an accident the way it happened. they had a very clear strategy so they, you have to have that then you have to have the governance of that and make sure that everybody uh is aligned with that uh and that you have both uh uh the uh, uh, executive support of these R&D initiatives and the hearts and minds of your uh, colleagues that are going to work with you towards your success. Because if the organization resists, you're uh, wasting your time,
1: right? Yeah. You've all got to be uh, in the boat rowing together, right? Um, so, yeah. you know, on that note, again, I, I can't thank you enough for joining us today on on the pod. And um, I'm just so excited to see what you bring to Wells Fargo uh the future and and kind of how you help to evolve not just their business and, and what their focus and their and their focus but really the uh the fintech world and the industry itself um and what we see for the future of banking. So appreciate Thank it.
2: Thank you so much Kyle. It was a real pleasure and look forward. Hopefully a year from now we can speak again and I can tell you about how these things have worked.
1: Yeah, no, I'm going to hold you to that. So we're going to have a second episode (laughs) a year from now. We're going to do it on the UC Berkeley campus with a bunch of people. We're going to do a live episode and we're going to talk about the successes and and where we've come. So um, I'm looking forward to it.
2: Wonderful. Thanks so much.
1: Beautiful. Have a great rest of your day.